I'm Alex. I'm Harrison. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're diving into a bowl of spaghetti and talking about Lady and the Tramp. A trend that we've been seeing so far with the Walt Disney Animation Studios films in the 1950s is that writers began to work on these projects before World War II, and Lady and the Tramp is no exception. But unlike most of the studio's previous films, the story of Lady and the Tramp isn't an adaptation from a fairy tale, a book, or a play. In fact, there's a lot of speculation as to exactly where the idea of Lady and the Tramp came from. Scholars and even longtime Disney employees don't actually know the history entirely. And as a result, you'll hear a lot of different tales about the movie's origin, most of which Walt or the company started. One of the most popular is that Walt got the idea for Lady and the Tramp because he gave his wife Lillian a hat box, and inside it was a dog, and it was supposed to be a gift. Now, accounts vary as to whether this was a Christmas gift or a sorry I bailed on our lunch date makeup offering. Either way, no one knows if this apparent origin story is entirely true. Most accounts tie the story's origin back to Joe Grant, an artist and writer at the Walt Disney Company who designed the Evil Queen in Snow White. Walt saw some drawings of his own dog, a Springer Spaniel, that was sort of pushed aside after he and his own wife had their first child. The drawings captured Walt's imagination, and he asked Grant to start working on a screenplay. Count Palmer worked with Grant on the treatment, and the final movie stays fairly true to Grant's take. The humans have a baby, the Siamese cat and the rat are the antagonists, Jack and Trusty are ladies' neighbors, and then there were a few other dogs who competed for ladies' affections. The film was going to be a short film, um, but then Grant advocated for it to be made into a feature-length film, which Walt said, sure, let's do it. Only one problem. Walt hated every version of the script that he saw, his main gripe with the main character, Lady. He felt like Lady wasn't compelling enough as a character and a bit boring. Grant kept working on the story, but to no avail, and Walt scrapped the project before World War II. It wasn't until Walt read a short story in Cosmopolitan that he felt confident resuming work on Lady and the Tramp. The short Happy Dan the Cynical Dog was about a stray mutt who manipulates people to get free food. Walt thought Dan would help bring some personality to Lady and a little life to the story, as the two characters were complete opposites. Walt also had the bright idea to make them fall in love, which basically was the start of the romance plot in the film that we now see. So he buys the rights to the short story and he puts his writers to work. However, by the time Walt got back around to resuming work on the picture in 1949, which was after World War II, Grant had left the studio after having some falling out with Walt and started his own greeting card business. Later, Grant mentions a few things that could have motivated his decision to leave the company. He noted that he wanted to escape the, quote, communal world of animated filmmaking, end quote, going on the record to say that he was dying to do something and have his own name on it, not his employer's name. He also had gripes about the way the studio compensated him financially, noting there were no royalties, so he got nothing for his work specifically. Former Disney executive Charlie Fink blames Grant's departure on the demanding nature of Walt Disney, whom Grant calls a, quote, good-natured autocrat, end quote. Mark Davis has gone on to say that Grant and Walt probably got into some argument However, Grant notably has refused to discuss the real, more serious reason for leaving the company. Nevertheless, production went on without him. By 1953, writers finalized the plot of the film, and even though it drew heavily from Joe Grant's initial concept, he received no credit for his work at the time. But Walt liked where the film was heading. Animators worked on the film from 1953 to 1954. 
Modern-day animators have gone on to say that the Nine Old Men's style and talent was refined by the time we get to Lady and the Tramp. Walt divided up the work by assigning main characters to two animators and side characters to one animator each. Frank Thomas and Milk Hall animated Tramp, Ollie Johnston animated Lady, Wolfgang Raetherman, ever the master of suspense, animated the bite and action sequence, and Eric Larson animated Peg in the whole he's a tramp scene. This wasn't always the most conducive way to work, but it's how Walt liked to assign roles, and we've seen this before with Snow White, Cinderella, and Peter Pan. Animators have gone on to describe this method saying, quote, whoever had the main action of the scene took first crack at it, but only after checking with the other animator. It was a clumsy way to make a picture, but I guess it protected the integrity of the characters, end quote. Animation historian Michael Barrier said that Lady and the Tramp was like a domesticated Bambi, which is funny to note because animators did animal studies like they did during Bambi's production. Now, I don't think they cut open a dog carcass to study the anatomy, but they did bring dogs into the studio to study the movement. There was even additional work done to make sure the animators truly captured the dog perspective in the film. To do this, Clyde Coates made a 3D model of the interior of the house that you see in the film and took low-angle photos. Animators and artists use these photos as reference when animating sequences from ladies' perspective. There's also a story that Frank Thomas wanted there to be a kissing scene between Lady and Tramp, but Walt didn't think he could make the dogs kiss on camera and make it look natural. So Frank Thomas animated the entire Bella Note scene out of spite, just to prove his point. And, you know, must have worked because it made it into the film. Meeting notes that date back to 1952 indicate Walt saw something good in Lady and the Tramp that he felt Alice and Peter Pan did not have. But that didn't mean he stopped his previous trend of gradually pulling his creative energies away from the animation department, a trend that you'll remember started after the 1941 animator strike. Michael Barrier notes, quote, Disney adhered to the pattern initiated in the work on Peter Pan by pushing onto the animators decisions that would have been made in the writing of the stories on earlier features, end quote. The production of the film looked like it did a few years earlier with Peter Pan. Frank Thomas and Milk Hall would get some important scenes to animate before the story was fully developed, and Walt brushed it off, saying that they would think of what to do in the situation. All in all, the creative team got little support from Walt, but are we surprised? No. No. So if Walt's not paying attention to the animation department, what's he working on at this time? So if you remember in our last episode on Peter Pan, I talked about Walt's desire to open an amusement park and how he got into live television in order to raise the money to build it. Roy Disney struck a deal with ABC in 1954 for a weekly television series that would begin that fall. Walt planned to use the television show to help the film department with advertising and to drum up excitement with his amusement park. The show was called Disneyland. Each episode was an hour long and would focus on one of the four areas of the park, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. Now, I mentioned this before, you know, that I could make a whole separate podcast about the Disney parks and their cultural influence. So I don't want to go into too much detail here and bog down the history section. But there are a few important things I want to know because it's important to keep in mind when thinking about Walt in the production of this movie. Now, if you know nothing about Disneyland, I'll save you hours of research. It was an absolute mess and was holding on by a thread about as thick as the one holding Fun and Fancy Free together. So not thick at all. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, tell us how you really feel. No, I'm just saying. Okay, so like, get this. Six weeks before the park opened, basically like nothing was completely finished. Only half the attractions could actually receive visitors. Paths were unpaid. There was no plumbing. The castle wasn't done. It just was an absolute mess. 
And everyone was telling Walt that he had to push back the opening, but Walt was not having it. So toward the end of their construction period, 2,500 men worked 16 hours a day to get the park to be presentable. And there's notes of Walt just like walking around the, around the park and being like, I need a panty there, painter there to paint that. Okay, I need this person to do this. I need that person to do that. And he even was like up there painting with them, just trying to get it all finished. There was a last minute plumber strike in the area. Um, so Walt had to, which ended up wrapping up, I think like a couple days before his park was supposed to open. So Walt had to decide whether he wanted to have working bathrooms or a drinking fountain system complete. He went with the bathrooms. Um, and as if the criticism of the masses wasn't enough pressure, ABC planned to do a live telecast for the opening. Wall to wall coverage. Of Disneyland's opening. So on July 17th, 1955, thousands of people line up in 100 degree heat to get into this park. Traffic was apparently backed up for miles um, just to get into the parking lot. And surprise, surprise, nothing really went to plan. Um, apparently, most of the people who showed up had fake tickets. So that's why the numbers were just so, there were so many people there. Fantasyland was closed because of a gas leak. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was closed because of a technical issue. And they just laid the asphalt down. So it was still soft and then melting in the heat. <laughs> so there's notes of like women in their heels and their heels are just like sinking into the asphalt incredible so now you think like walt ever the perfectionist would be absolutely livid about how nothing was going right but accounts say that he was apparently the happiest that most people have ever had ever seen them because he was seeing his dream become a reality um not to mention the um, constant revenue that he was getting from the park meant that he was debt free for the first time in like probably his entire adult life so lots to celebrate there the first 10 weeks drew in 1 million visitors. Political leaders from all over the world came to visit the park, seeing it as the cliff notes of American culture. And that whole live telecast I was talking about, which was a whole cluster mess in and of itself, drew in nearly half of the American population that had televisions. That many people were tuning in to watch this park's opening. And like... I don't have this written down, but I t it was so funny because apparently, like, whoever was TDing just was not having a good time. I felt so bad for the directors because, like, apparently Jeez, they would no take kidding. they would take to like certain shots, but the talent, like the anchor out there, wasn't ready, and he'd like just be doing his thing, and then he'd look at the camera and be like, "Oh, am I on? Oh, hi, how's it going?" Like, Sounds about right. An absolute mess. Complete disasters all around. All around. So as we've mentioned in earlier episodes, Morgan has worked at Disneyland before and had some additional insights into the park's grand opening. Because it sounds like you also know a lot about cast requirements earlier. And I'm curious now because you mentioned like in the 50s when it opened, it was a train wreck. Like, Oh, yeah. What opening happened? Day? Oh, opening day was a total train wreck at Disneyland. Like that was that was going to be Disney's biggest flop at one point Disneyland was like people were like this is going to be terrible this guy like they were super everyone was super excited about the park opening and then opening day came which it was like a rushed opening day they didn't have like and most of the rides were not open and half of them broke down you know um, <laughs> the characters were not great they scared children 
And the day after opening, like Disney was like, we have to start again on these characters because those are like terrifying, like even more scary than they've ever been. Yeah. Like they basically are just like these giant heads with legs. Like those were like, that was Mickey, you know, I'll have to try to find pictures or something. I know that we used to have like a ton like backstage, but um, yeah, like, so like it was like a total train wreck in the beginning. Wow. And like, but they, in the, um, in training, they basically use that as like a, look, even Walt Disney can fail. <laughs> and then he created this, you know, that's kind of right, like a motivational like, kind of thing. Right. Like, oh, he, he didn't, that wasn't like a total train ride. That was just the foundation. So when you look at the style of Disneyland, and I'm talking specifically about Main Street USA, Walt clearly drew inspiration from a small town in Missouri called Marceline, which he has gone on to describe as the, quote, exemplar of the steadfast virtues of middle America, end quote. Walt's parents moved to Marceline when he was five, and he lived there until he was about nine or ten years old. Even though he spent most of his life in Chicago and Kansas City, he always considered Marceline his home. This is where he first saw the play Peter Pan, and he spent a lot of time outside in nature. Um, and it's also a railroad town, and some say that this be living in Marceline is why Walt ended up loving trains as much as he did. Disney historians have gone on to say that Main Street USA draws from what the town Marceline looked like in the 1900s, although more stylized and idyllic. But it's not necessarily historically accurate. Walt is definitely producing a romanticized view of what he remembers from his youth, and a similar style appears in Lady and the Tramp. It's like the whole good old days, old-timey, you know, pre-turn-of-the-century kind of feel, but then there's hints of these technological advancements, like um, you see automobiles and telephones and things like that. Um, And coincidentally, Disneyland opened one month after Lady and the Tramp premiered. Okay, so now I'm going to backtrack a bit to discuss a few more aspects of the production of the film. So Clyde Geronimi, Wilfred Jackson, and Hamilton Lusk directed the film, and this directorial team is basically the team that we see directing all the 1950 animated, all the animated films in the 50s so far. Um, Mary Blair did concept art for the film and was supposed to paint the backgrounds, but she ended up leaving the studio in 1953. She says that she was frustrated the studio downgraded her art, Um, for the final releases of the films and left to start a freelance career. Speaking of the backgrounds of the films, so you might have noticed if you've watched this film on Disney Plus um, that there's a little more background to the shots than in previous uh, studio, than in previous films that we've seen. More background meaning it's horizontal instead of like square, in case no one picked up on what I meant there. Yay, segues. This is because of the invention of CinemaScope in 1953. It was a new format. (laughs) I love CinemaScope. CinemaScope's great. (laughs) So it was a new format for film. Basically, movie theaters would switch a lens on a projector. So the image that you see is a wider rectangle as opposed to a square. CinemaScope was invented in response to televisions becoming more popular in American homes. Movie theaters were trying to think of ways to get people to go to movie theaters instead of just watching films at home. Boy, does that not sound like the age we live in now with streaming. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? 
2.66 to 1 aspect ratios. We love to see them. We love to see them. However, the studio did not decide to make Lady and the Tramp in the CinemaScope format when it started animating the film. So animators had to adjust the film to fit this new screen. Because of this, you can see characters more spaced out on the screen in some shots, and in others, characters seem very small, placed on a wide, detailed background. There are a few close-up shots in the film and longer takes, and some sequences had to be completely reanimated so that the action fit on the screen. Because of this, modern-day animators say that the movie looks like quote, an animated Norman Rockwell painting, end quote. However, because it was such a new invention, not all movie theaters had it. So the studio ended up animating two versions of the film. And I'll include a side-by-side video that shows the film in each aspect ratio in our show notes on the Talk Film Society website. I want to touch on music for a minute. Oliver Wallace wrote the score for Lady and the Tramp. He was a film accompanist before going to work for Disney and composed his first major score for Dumbo. He would then go on to replace Frank Churchill and composed all the songs up until Lady and the Tramp. This notably is the last movie that he worked on at Disney. Um, and basically the entire first 15 minutes of the film, that music that you hear is all his original composition. Um, the songs were written by Peggy Lee and Sonny Burke. Walt wanted the songs to have a pop music feel, and he felt that strategy worked well with his previous films. Peggy Lee was a popular jazz musician and singer in the 50s, and she also lent her voice to four characters, Darling, Peg, and the cats, Cyan Am. She also notably gave some story advice to Walt. When she looked over the plot, she said that the rats and the cats were too scary, and Trusty should not die at the end, because he did die at the end in the original, in the original plot. So she told Walt to change those elements, and ultimately Walt was like, all right, you know what, Trusty, he can live, but we're keeping the rats. However, Peggy's relationship with the company grew sour. The company got into some hot water for not giving their performers their cut of the royalties when Disney started releasing their movies to home video. Apparently, producers made performers sign a contract that specify rights would be withheld for, quote, formats to be invented in the future, end quote. In 1985, Lee sued Disney for a breach of contract, saying she owned the songs in the movie and should get a cut of the revenue. In 1991, she won the suit and was awarded $2.3 million for her work. One last tidbit before we move on to reception of the film. Lady and the Tramp was the first Animation Studios film not distributed by RKO. So remember back in the 1940s when Walt and Roy were doing so poorly financially that they almost sold out to RKO? Well, with the consistent revenue coming in from the amusement park and new demands on the studio's finances with the whole television show, Walt and Roy began to wonder if they still needed a distributor. Apparently, the Disneys and RKO had a dispute over the terms for Lady and the Tramp and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Roy wanted $3.5 million in advance for the films and a reduction in RKO's fee from 22.5% to 20% of rental revenues. RKO's owner, Howard Hughes, on the other hand, wanted to increase the fee to 25%. So the two had a falling out, and the Walt Disney Company created its own distribution arm. Lady and the Tramp was going to be released in 1954, but the premiere got pushed back to 1955 because Walt was so focused on the ABC television show and the Disneyland Park. The company did hire Ward Green to write a novel of the story in 1953, so audiences were familiar with it. Now, because remember, this was a Disney original story, so creating some lore about its inception was was an important advertising technique. The film had a $4 million budget and ended up making $6.5 million in distributor rentals. This was the most money that one of the Animation Studios films made, aside from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Critics, however, did not like it upon its first release. Time Magazine had a 
particularly scathing review, saying that Disney combines gooey sentiment and stark horror in a way that does not work. Brosley Cowther said that it was not Disney's best, but critics eventually warmed up to the movie, and right now, AFI ranks it as number 95 on its top 100 greatest love stories of all time. Lady and the Tramp. I had considerably less notes for this one. Oh, this movie, man. Yeah, so you tweeted tweeted earlier that you ranked it a cringe face out of 10. A a double double grimace out of 10. Yes. Woof, this movie. Did not like it. No. This movie's bad. Okay. Why? I'll just say straight up, this movie's bad. Why? This movie's boring. Like, this movie's boring in the same way that Bambi's boring, but uh, less interestingly so. Mm. Like, Bambi at least has the benefit of being, like, one of the, like, first Disney movies to do all that kind of stuff. Which, like, for when it hits and when it hits in the run, it's like, oh, man, this is wild. But, like, coming right off of Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, this is just like, okay... All right, what are we doing here? Like, there's there. What? Why are things happening? Like, mm. I I know why things are happening, but like the logic from one step to another doesn't feel like it holds for me, or at least isn't very interesting. Um, the other cringe face is, ooh, those cats. <laughs> we'll get to the cats. I know. <laughs> she says, tired. I know. Low key though, like, because we've talked, you know, like we've talked to so many people about this already. But the when I saw the content warning at first, I was confused and I was like, "What?" And then it occurred to me what it was about and was like, "Oh, right." Yeah. But, anyways, yes, I would agree that compared to Alice, Peter Pan, and even to an extent Cinderella, where we have such plot focused movies or at least like interesting you know like there's a clear motivation whether that's intrinsic or extrinsic with this it's definitely more of like that slice of life you know buildings roman kind of vibe like it's basically about lady growing up essentially in the way that bambi is about bambi growing up would i i personally i think i I liked i was more engaged with Lady and the Tramp than I was with Bambi, personally. Um, and I think it's just because I liked the characters more than I did in Bambi. And when I say yeah. characters, I don't mean the the, the Italians or anything <laughs> like that. What I'm talking about is just all the dogs and, you know, that sort of not Not the ones that you're sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, I thought we were past being racist towards Italians, but apparently not. Nope. We gotta have gotta have a guy pop up and be like, "Hey, it's Pinky. Go make it the spaghetti." So this is gonna make you cry internally. But I was watching the Disney documentary on how they made Lady and the Tramp, and yeah. I gotta pull up this quote. It just made okay. me so mad. I didn't include it in the history because okay. I just wanted it. Just okay. It needed to be more organic and not written out. <laughs> quote: It's not about ethnicity. It's about having fun as a non-native English speaker. <laughs> Like, one of the guys who work at Disney said that about the accents in the film. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy shit. 
I it's mean, not racist. We're just having fun. Excuse I mean, me? we're here. We might as well just jump into the racist bit because, like, we've already. Oh, it's so bad. Up. It's so bad. Like, my jaw. Like, I remembered the cats being bad, but uh-huh. my jaw hit the fucking floor. I was, I was writing down. What, what note was I writing? Um, I was, I was writing the note. Who the fuck brings their cats to house sit? And my jaw just dropped to the dropped when I heard that gong go off. I'm just like, oh no! It's so bad. It's and for people who may have watched the movie and be like, I'm confused. Why is this racist? It's so with like, and this is basically when you look at Disney and how them and other Hollywood you know production companies have portrayed asian americans up until this point there's kind of like kind of like we what we talked about with saludos amigos and the three caballeros there's stereotypes um that all these companies use to show okay this person is asian this person is not asian and they're kind of used in, they they're not kind of used they are used in a way to like demean the character so what we see in lady and the tramp is these two cats who have slanted eyes um the buck teeth and cannot speak English grammatically correct and with very heavy accents. Um, and, but the thing is, they're also the villains in the scene, right? They're there to cause trouble. They are there to basically put Lady out of the house. Um, they are like, they are the antagonists, right? They are the ones who are provoking and the ones actually causing trouble, even though Lady is the one who, you know, gets punished for it. Um, so yeah, not great. I get it. Cats behave like assholes, but you don't need to like. <sighs> Did you know? You don't need to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You don't need to racialize cat behavior. Mm-mm. And did you know that like technically the Siamese cat is one of the most like chill cats. Like they're not like super mischievous <sighs> or super like de- I don't want to call them demonic, but like you know just they're not troublemakers. I'll call cats demonic. Fuck cats. <laughs> but like. Um, but that's but yeah. like, so they and so again it's like they're not even presenting these cats as they are typically known to be you know just by their nature it's that they're like oh siamese cats they must be yeah. asian Tasman and I were talking about harmful Asian stereotypes in another Disney film during our interview, so I asked for her thoughts on Sai and Am. She couldn't think of their scene in Lady and the Tramp off the top of her head, so she ended up watching it to form a few opinions. Oh, it's so terrifying. It's a, it like, just the, the music is terrifying. Oh, Lady. Oh, the accent. I love Lady. Are they trying to drown a fish? Oh, no. Oh. No, no. Oh, the poor fucking fish. Oh, no. Okay. Bit of context for people listening. We just did a bit of looking into Siamese cats. They are from <laughs> Thailand. Uh-huh. Um, so I can I get why they maybe wanted to make them Asian. If they were if they were like from the Bronx and then they made them Asian, I'd be like, um, why are you making these bad characters Chinese looking? Um but at least that gives a reason as to why they made them Asian. Um I'm assuming they were voiced by white people they all were back then and mm-hmm. um, the accents of like when they're talking terrible <laughs> so so bad um that doesn't make me as angry as the aristocats bit does though okay i feel like the aristocats bit is 
purely fucking like taking the piss whereas that one was like we're ignorant white people from the 70s we're gonna try and make these chinese um (laughs) i don't feel like they were making fun of well they weren't doing a good job but i don't feel like they were going oh hero or whatever like there was um is it chelsea is an american like um tv host or something and she fully did a really really terrible impression of chinese people on like live like a year ago mm-hmm. no um yeah the aristocats one makes me more angry because that's taking a stereotype and just amplifying as much as you can whereas i feel like with the aristocats with um lady in the tramp they were incorrectly just trying to have an Asian character and failing miserably. Yes. But I don't feel like they were intentionally, you know, trying to make a clown of them. Mm-hmm. They were terrifying. I remember them from my childhood not thinking, oh, they're Asian cats, but thinking they are going to kill me in my sleep. So they did a good job of giving me nightmares. There you go. There you go. And I think in itself, though, like, I guess you could also look at it though and think like okay they made the two characters that are of asian descent the villains in this movie yeah you kind of have that element to it you know we talked earlier about how like you know all villains nowadays are chinese and russian right yeah i can i feel like um because as like a creative my as a creative myself there are going to be like within any group of people there are always shits like there are gay dudes that are terrible people but that doesn't mean all gay dudes are terrible you know right but then if you have a film in which a character is gay and they're bad suddenly people are like are you trying to say that all gay people but it's like no they have a gay character who is also a bad dude like it doesn't mean that they're being homophobic you know mm-hmm. um obviously this is different because it was in the, from the 70s but i do feel like it makes sense for those cats to have been shits as characters because they're trying to frame lady right mm-hmm. and then it also makes sense that they were asian because that species that breed of cat is from thailand mm-hmm. so i feel like that is okay i'm okay with that um but it's the way that it was done that wasn't good if that makes sense This conversation brings up an interesting point that I began to ponder after the interview. Why did Disney decide to make the cats Siamese cats in the first place? Why not choose a different breed of cat to make the villain and then frame Lady, as Tasman puts it? In their essay, A Vexing Implication, Siamese Cats and Orientalist Mischief-Making, Kamiko Akita and Rick Kenny argue Sai and Am are offensive caricatures of Asians, which was exemplary of the yellow peril stereotype that was perpetuated by mass media in the United States around the time Lady and the Tramp came out. We've talked a lot at this point about the offensive caricature, the slanted eyes and grammatical errors while speaking English being the main ones. Akita and Kenny also point out Cyan Am's sleek drawing, showing they are meant to be sneaky, um, their exaggerated overbites, their yellow skin, and the fact that they drop their verbs when speaking. But what do they mean by yellow peril? Essentially, there was a collective fear among white people in the United States that Asians posed some menacing threat. In history, we see these anxieties peak in the 1950s, as that is right after World War II and during the Korean War. Coincidentally, Lady and the Tramp's production picked up the year the Korean War ended. Let's go back to the movie for a second and think about Cyan Am's role. 
The cats, along with Aunt Sarah, work to make Lady feel like she is out of place in her own home. Uh, they work to disrupt her domestic bliss and ultimately cause her to get banished to the doghouse outside. Akita and Kenny argue this reflects the way Americans in the 1950s felt their lives were endangered by foreigners. This is just a brief overview of all the politics that go into the Yellow Peril, and I'll include some more resources on it in our show notes. Now, when we look at the Italians, it's also bad. It's also bad. Um, it's not, they're obviously not the villains in the situation. So there's that going for them. But at the same time, it's just, again, this like, you know, presented in an overly, like, you know, just the accent is very, very thick. It's over the top. It's like they the might top. not, they're not the villains in the same way that the, the cats are portrayed to be, but they are the butt of the joke, mm-hmm. which is in, which is like just as bad, honestly. Yeah. Because they're, you know, they're doing the back and forth arguing. And then there's that one bit where, um, you know, Tramp orders the spaghetti and meatballs. And so the one guy goes, is like, Hey, he wants the spaghetti and meatballs. And the other guy's like, dogs don't talk. And he's like, he talks to me. All right. He talks to you. Whatever you say, it goes back to like stirring the, the pasta or whatever. Um, and again, it's like, those Italian, like, stereotypically tal- Italian mannerisms, you know, like the hands. They do yeah, the like, hands and the big boisterous and the gestures and everything. And it's just a whole thing. It's a whole thing. What else did you not like? So, like, this feels like it's the, like, the, the Ur film for this mode of Disney animal escapade. Um, I ha- I have a note here that's like it's Disney's first real animal centric movie, and that's not quite the case because we had um Dumbo, Bambi, 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 and Dumbo before this. But it's like contemporary animal adventure where animals are maneuvering through society and like human society in the modern day, and just trying to get back to their humans essentially Mm -hmm. like that ends up being a reoccurring motif throughout Disney animal movies Mm -hmm. like Bolt and Oliver and company and home on the range Fox and the Hound. Like that is the central driving factor of a lot of the Disney animal movies. And this feels like the start of it Mm -hmm. and it sucks. So why does it, why does it not work? Well, for one thing, it doesn't pop up until like 75% of the way through the movie. <laughs> um, and like the first, the first chunk of it is cute. It's just like, I like Bambi because it's Bambi learning how to deer, right? We skip over a lot of, um, lady learning how to be, how learning like how to be a dog in this, in like, uh, in like, wealthy suburban america like she's like she just she shows up the first night and then worms her way into the bed which by the way is the most relatable thing in the world like you get a dog you get a pet and your dad is like all right just this one night it could sleep in your bed and then it sleeps in your bed for the rest of existence right um which is an incredible dissolve fade for uh, just one night cut to her six months later as an adult in this bed so like there are good bits here but like once the other dogs get introduced i just immediately tune out because i don't like the other dogs Mm -hmm. i think they're annoying um 
and then just I I just can't be bothered. Like it, like I just don't care at all. Yeah, none of this works for me at all. And that's aside from the classist shit in this and the fact that Disney really doesn't like elderly single women yeah. at all. Tell me about it. Uh, um, like, at least the movie's pretty, I guess. it's It's got a good aspect ratio. I'll give it that. <laughs> that aspect ratio, though. Uh, Real. Yeah, I think... Yeah, it definitely, like, compared to a lot of the other films we've watched, did not capture my intellect as much. Um, You know, you have your obvious gender reads, you know, the pound is prison read, you know, like, and then, like, class reads, which can tie into the prison reads, you know, all that jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, though. I still thought I, I didn't mind the dogs, you know, like, it's just, I didn't, like adore them i didn't think they were the best dynamic duo um but like they were just ladies gay parents and her gay dads and i was like oh love to see yeah see you see you say that they were her gay dads and then they go propose to her at the end of the movie that's the thing which comes out of fucking nowhere and sucks well the thing is i was thinking about that and i was like that's odd but then when you think about it like kind of what i was mentioning before the pound like in her society is this taboo thing right like you go to the pound and that's associated with the low lives um and i don't know like i just read the whole pound to me read as like you could see it as a like how we treat you know former prisoners and former convicts and things like that you know like Mm -hmm. you try to enter your life again and you know, for many people, like, you know, they can't get jobs, you know, they can't <laughs> restart their lives again, right? And so them proposing to me was just kind of more of like a, you know, we know things are difficult, but we care about you. And so we're just going to try to help you, like, fit back into the society as well as you can. Now, do I like that that's the reality that they're working with? No, I hate that. Do I like that lady has to, like, quote marry one of them or like the logic there is that she has to marry one of them in order to like i don't know just fit back into this upper class society that she wasn't no like i think that's gross but i think just given the the cultural conception of like what being in prison means i think that logic does make sense and it didn't really read as like a like a oh you want to get married kind of a situation it just kind of was like a i don't know know. that's kind of that's kind of i don't know does that make sense what i'm saying i i i I understand the a to b to c to that the problem is like her being in the dog house her being literally in the dog house is gonna last for all of what 30 minutes until jim deer and darling get home because immediately they're like all right come back inside and like Aunt Sarah's going to be like, oh, she misbehaved a bit. And they're going to be like, I don't quite believe you. Something else probably happened, but okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. Go home and take your shitty cats. Uh, and then everything's back to normal. Bada no, bada boom. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that when it comes to things like this in this movie, there are no consequences. Like, right. when you even look at, like, Tramp being on the other side of the tracks, like, even that's idyllic. 
right? He's just mm-hmm. that cute little dog on the other side of the tracks who really, like, at the end of the day is pretty good-natured. Like, yeah, he sleeps with a bunch of other dogs, as is implied. But, like, I don't know. He's, like, he could they, he could have been a lot worse. <laughs> I don't want to say worse. That's not the correct term. He could have been a lot rougher around the edges, right? Right. But Which, really, he like, just goes and he gets food from other people and yeah, sneaks into the park so that he can get ladies muzzle off her, right? Like, mm-hmm. So, but like, so that's the thing. Like, in this movie, there are no consequences for any of this because it is a highly romanticized snapshot of this sort of life. Um, so then I guess at the end, like, all that, like, you know, it's so, like, because there are no consequences, the whole, like, in the doghouse comparison doesn't have the, does not match the gravity as it would in real life. Mm hmm. But I think Fair. that's still the thinking that they were going for with that. Yeah, I, I, I guess that makes that makes some sense to me. I just oh. <laughs> nothing because there's no consequences. Nothing sticks to this movie for me, mm-hmm. except for like the the like inherent classes class, like the classist shit in this movie, because it's like, yeah, everything's idyll- idyllic and like even tramps like rough and tumble street life of being homeless is also I- idealized and he's doing pretty okay for a street dog. And yeah. he manages to break his buddies out of, out of the pound pretty consistently and yada, yada, yada. But like he is, it's, he is basically like the hooker with a heart of gold trope in Westerns <laughs> and gets rewarded for his like good behavior and saving of the baby <laughs> by being elevated out of, homelessness and brought into upper upper society Mm -hmm. like the ideal working class poor person still is lesser than and and in order to be like it's it's that thing i've talked about consistently of like class markers being used to designate good and bad people like a good person like class is a, like class is a signifier of your moral code. If you are a good person, you will be elevated up. If you are a bad if you are a bad person, you will be brought low, mm-hmm. regardless of the affect that you choose to present. And it sucks. Yes, and it's interesting because like I don't know because even with all the other dogs in the pound. Like, you never really get the sense that they're, like, these degenerate... That, again, I don't want to call them degenerates. But, that, that, you know, that they're on the bad side of the tracks or whatever. You know, like, mm-hmm. you don't really get their back. They're just kind of there. And, like, there's nothing... They all kind of are like Tramp. It's almost just like Tramp was the one who happened to be in the right place at the right time and earned someone with a home's trust. <laughs> and was yeah. like, oh, there you go. But... Yeah, I guess. But then, again, that goes back to the fact that, like, this movie has no teeth to it. Yeah. Cause like, it, like again, anything I try to, any reading we get anywhere close to can be undercut by the fact that like, well, everyone's pretty nice. Well, except it's aunt fine. Sarah. Aunt Sarah. Yeah, man, just how can someone just be so unaware? Like for, especially with someone who has animals, like I get their cats, but how like she just, does not i guess it just shows she's just a cat person like Mm -hmm. does not like dogs i this is where i'm at with disney's portrayal of of 
older single women in their movies at this point. She was carrying Lady into the pet store. I'm like, I swear to God, you cannot return this dog. <laughs> you cannot sell this dog. That's not how this works. Right. And she was like, I need a muzzle. I'm like, okay, that's whatever. A muzzle is fine. Like right. uh, a muzzle can actually be a good training tool. Like when you sparingly, but as punishment, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And then they muzzle lady in the store. I'm like, of course this isn't going to go well. No. Also, y'all need to improve your grip. Like lady should not have been lady is a cocker spaniel. She should have been should not have been able to wiggle out of y'all's grip no, that quickly. She's tiny. She's so tiny she's and so she like little. and she destroys the, that store. Yes. Because they let her. Right. All of this comes down to bad pet management by the adults. Yes. What are what are the adults doing? Well, and it's so I will say like when at the end when Jim Deere and Darling come back and <laughs> You know, um, lady starts barking and Aunt Sarah's like, oh, shut up, like, or something like that. And Jim's like, no, she's trying to tell us something. I have never felt more relief in my life. I was like, thank God, someone with sense. (laughs) Right? Like, Jim Deere and Darling are actually, like, competent dog parents. Yes. And, like, understand what the hell is going on and how to read their dog. Like, y'all, I don't, I just... I don't understand. I also like. I just don't understand why you would let someone bring animals into your house right. to to pet sit, especially if like like introducing another dog into the mix is one thing, mm-hmm. but two cats? Are you insane? Those cats immediately hopped out of there, and they say it in the song. It's like, all right, this is our this is our house now. We own this place. We're yeah. gonna just destroy no. it. No, no, you don't. Cats are do do, do not do that. Also. I can't think I in my experience no cat would go in a box that easily no cat would go in those in a in a picnic basket and can we just talk about and the fact it, that they never show up after that one scene yep and Sarah's still there and there's no still cons- scenes in the no house but we never like they never come back also like yeah it, yeah that's actually an extremely good point cats love to hunt rats you kidding me those cats would have been on that rat immediately right I don't know maybe they both because they're both like these supposed to be evil antagonist characters they like you know they had some sort of deal <laughs> with, with they were like all right rat we won't eat you but blah 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 blah. i don't see, know it, yeah see if this were a don bluth movie i would get i could get that but this is early disney there's not enough like again no teeth to this thing at all uh but um yeah no disney doesn't like unmarried women like you said just Ugh. And it's just like, and that's the worst. And you know, sometimes like with the unmarried women, they're at least like they're smart, or at least they're like have some semblance of being like a strong character. But Aunt Sarah, you're just sitting there, and you're like, you, oh no, no, stop. Yeah, she sucks. <sighs> like, listen to someone. Don't think you know everything. But then I guess like you could also tie it to the misogynist idea that like when women enter a home they want to make it their home, right? You know, or like they like nest, Mm -hmm. right? They want to like, they have to be in charge of everything. They set the rules, even if it's not her own home, which makes her then even more of a villain in this movie. Because not only is she like the cause for ladies displacement, but she's also in a way displacing Jim and Darling and, you know, the, the rules that they've established in the home and like the environment and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, because she immediately comes in and upends everything that lady is comfortable with. Exactly. Which, no, 
leave the poor dog alone. Speaking of letting her be, mm. hey, uh, Tramp, leave this poor girl alone, please. Okay. Like, let her go, let her go home. She wants to go home. Don't, Don't make her chase a, chickens. Yeah, she lit. She wants to go home. Back off. Also, um, like the weird romance stuff in this, I did not feel like this was a romance at all no. until until the Italians force heteronormativity onto these dogs. I think like you got a vibe that like Tramp was like into her. Like when like the way when he sees her with the muzzle, the way he like he was like very like emotionally affected by it. Mm-hmm. So I got a little bit from there, but I had like no I other than that, it was just nothing. It no just chemistry happened. between these two dogs. No, except for the fact that this is a very standard enemies to lovers. Yeah. <laughs> like the most bare bones. Enemies in quotes, by the way. Right. Because they're on pretty good terms throughout the whole thing. Yeah. He's just a little rough around the edges. Whatever. But yeah, no, the romance didn't work for me. Which, again, it's like, how is this number five on the top 100 romances? Excuse you, 95. It is not number five. That's what I meant to say, 95. Because, like, I don't know. It just, it's, again, it's one of these things where it's, and again, I think you can tie this back to gender, like, you know, Tramp's quote is, open up your eyes to what a dog's life could really be, right? Like, Lady is the one who doesn't know anything. Um, It's Tramp's responsibility as the man in this dynamic to show her the world, to show her how real life works because she's been, you know, so sheltered so much her entire existence. But, like, you again, going back to what we've been saying, there's really no teeth to that. that. So at the end of the movie, really, you're just kind of like, other than what like you know there's no like reason why you know it's not like she has to she learns something while she's out on the streets that helps her achieve her goal in the end yeah you know like nothing about what tramp did really like did anything which i guess is is good um you know she stayed true to herself but again it's just that whole idea that like women don't know real life Which I find deeply funny because ultimately he's the one that has his eyes open to the benefits of domestic life and right. de- and ends up, quote unquote, settling down. Right. Which then, again, like enforces this idea of heteronormativity, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can't just sleep around your whole life. You have to, like, mate off to just one dog and have your four kids. Which, you know, works for some people, but it's not... Yeah the thing for everyone for everyone yeah uh but yeah romance didn't work but i will say bella note as a song i really i do like that song just it it's a fun song it just it's pretty especially when the quiet like when the they sing it over this um the credits at the beginning yeah i was singing along (laughs) i mean good for you i think all these songs are kind of bad that's the only one I like. I I don't like I don't like most of these. Like Bella Note is okay because like the accordion and it's like I'm not sure whether or not I like it or just like culture has told me I'm supposed to like it mm. and it's like it's just everywhere. Mm. Like if I don't have to, if I never have to see those dogs make out over the spaghetti again, it'll be too soon. While Harrison and I didn't really buy the romance, 
Not everyone walks away from Lady and the Tramp feeling the same way. In fact, the romance is one of the reasons why Emily likes the movie so much. Uh, love Lady and the Tramp, by the way. Um, say more. Same. Oh, so, okay, ignore yeah. my... Well, yeah, okay. say more and then go back. And then, and then back. circle back. Um, Lady and the Tramp was just, like, again, one of those ones that I would watch with my dad. Um, and, like, I know it has its issues, from what I've been told. Um but when you're a kid, you, when you're a little kid, when you're like a five-year-old, you, I just like, I never even thought of those things. Like to me, like I know like people have a problem with the Siamese cats. Like I never even like realized that that was connected to race. I thought they were just being weird cats because cats are weird. <laughs> um, and I just, I love, I, it was like a love story that was not a woman pining after a man's attention. It was the other way around. You know, the, the tramp was like wanting, wanting that lady. Um, and it was cute. And like, it has an iconic scene with the spaghetti that like people try to recreate. And it's like, it was just a cute movie that I, obviously like I, it's not like one of my top favorites. I couldn't remember it 10 minutes ago when we started talking about this, but I think about it and I'm just like, that was cute. That was so cute. <laughs> And then also, he's a tramp is um, bad and weird. Why is everyone horny for this dog? Also, why are they excusing it? Like the whole the whole course, he's a tramp, but I love him. Like, yeah, he's this terrible player, but you know, oh, he's so sweet. Like, you know, it's endearing that he's such a player. Like, no, <laughs> if he's really that bad of a person, we should not be excusing that just because he can smile cute or whatever. No, stop. Mm-hmm. The f- <laughs> the one and only shot we see of the baby. Looks like a the, porcelain doll. Yeah, because it's part of the background. It's not actually animated because they couldn't be bothered no. to have like a couple of shots with the baby. Nah, it's part of the background. So naturally, it looks fucking ugly. That baby looks horrible. Yeah, my stomach dropped when I saw it. I was like, are we, are, is really this is what we're going with? This, ba- this baby, ugly. Oh my gosh. Okay, my only other note, um, literally my only other note. Uh, because just not not a ton of thoughts about this one. Just like this movie felt like popcorn being thrown in my face. Not crazy about it, but ultimately not enough weight to really irritate me. Uh, yo, Trusty got murdered and we just move on. That jump gave me whiplash. Freaking it was whiplash. Wild. Okay. And then they're <laughs> literally he is. At the wheel of the wagon, Jock howls. It's so sad. Then we are like, oh, look, it's Christmas. Everyone's happy. And look, Jock and Trusty are here. And you're like, I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. No. That dog was dead. That dog was so dead. dead. Which makes sense. Like, you know, when Walt made that last minute decision to, like, bring Trusty back to life, I'm sure they just tacked him on at the end of the scene. They didn't, you know, they didn't bother to change the action sequence toward the end. Right? Yeah. Ugh. Which, like, I will I will give these movies credit. The action scene... I'll th- give this movie credit. The action scenes are pretty okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a sucker for, like, kind of impressionist, like, black and gray, uh, quick movement choreography mm-hmm. kind of across the board. Like, that's also what got me about the Sleepy Ho- uh, Headless Horseman sequence in Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Like, that also looks great. It looks great. It's pretty. This movie's pretty. I totally think all those dogs in the pound 
they use those designs for Oliver and company to some extent. Yeah, I feel like that's the case. Because there's um, that bulldog, there's the chihuahua, there's, um, I'm pretty sure that blue dog, the big blue dog, like that's one of the, like that inspired a dog. Like that, yeah. every dog that like speaks in that scene is going to be an Oliver and company character. Right. I mean, they. this is the point where we start getting the assets that they're really going to start reusing um, when things get <laughs> things get dire again. Well, it's Xerox. Um, when they get to Xerox, that's when we'll... Yeah. That's when we'll see that. Yeah. Which is really not that far away at this point. No, um, that's the 60s, so that's like... We have two movies away. We're five point. years out. Yeah. Two um, Yeah, because Trusty is basically... Trusty gets copy-pasted into Aristocats. Mm. Yeah, he's one of the... the, the oh, um, Lafayette! That, that dog, the one yeah. who's like, Lafayette! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, um it's also very funny to hear uh i'm pretty sure that was mr smee slash oh. the white rabbit as the bulldog yes. and just trying to it do was. this trying to do this grimy british accent and just cannot maintain it at all so i had two other things that i want okay bring up. so okay. again more with this whole like heteronormativity and gender everything it just oh my favorite seeps, bring it more, bring it on seeps everywhere because like what do we open on we open on a christmas between like a married man and his wife what are their names jim deer and darling which i think mm-hmm. to an extent can be clever because you know those are the names that lady hears for the first time right when she's with them so that's what she's gonna associate them with right like we don't know their actual names um, but I think I did think that was cool. But then let's think about like, you know, Jim's the one, you know, who gets the name. Darling's the side piece. You know, it's like a pet name. We don't actually know what her name is. Um, it he- just clicked to me that you called his wife the side piece. <laughs> <laughs> but like, isn't that what a wife is in heteronormativity? Like, <laughs> am I wrong? <laughs> or is that too harsh? <laughs> I think I think it's porky no los dos, you know. Eh, there we go. Um, and even when um, you look at Jim and Darling in their robes, Jim's is always blue, hers is always pink, right? Like it's very just very 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 black and white man woman. Um, and this is ultimately like we see this again when we look at Lady and Tramps relationship like this whole kind of you know genderedness of everything um especially when it comes to the names so tramp doesn't i guess have a name Mm -hmm. like he never says hi i'm tramp it's we get his name through the song but tramp refuses to use lady's name he calls her pidge and he calls her kid or pigeon right and it's like one like and yes like we give dogs arbitrary sounds as their names that's just how it works but like he doesn't use her name he uses like these kind of demeaning like nicknames in a way like pigeon because like he chases birds like he wants to chase her all right and then he calls her kid which like i get she's younger than him because she's like six months old or a year old (laughs) or whatever but yeah she is like a child she is a child i get that i get that but like i don't know it's just something that you see a lot in these heteronormative romances especially like you know ones that you would see in the 50s just Mm -hmm. men being like you know finding these pet names that in a way 
put the woman below them, right? It's like they're like uh they're a step lower. I'm also I'm also just I'm it it took me a second to wrap my head around it, but you saying we give dogs arbitrary sounds as names that's that's language, Alex. No, I know. That is, <laughs> no, I know. But I'm thinking we like think especially to the dogs, but like especially because <laughs> dogs don't speak English, right? So it's like what is anything except just arbitrary sounds that like I mean, form something, and then when they sound similar, they can put two and two together and be like, ah, yes. I don't know, but that 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 goes into language studies. Language, Alex. <laughs> there is no intrinsic meaning to the word "dog." We make a noise and associate it with a thing. Yes, that is literally language. No, I know. I understand. <laughs> I I know what you're saying. Um, God, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, and then at the end of the day, it's her home. And even though she tries to defend it throughout the film, like, you know, she tries to chase the cats off. She tries to chase, chase the rat off. You know, she tries to protect the baby. It's Tramp who ends up protecting her own home. <laughs> Which, you know, is fine. It's whatever. But again, it's like the guy has to be the one that comes in to, like, save the day. Which I, is very basic gender reading. But it's there. So that's why I brought it up. Um, so yeah, again, like we've been saying, can't really, that that's about as far as any of this goes. But then I also want to talk about one other thing. So remember in Fun and Fancy Free, when I brought up the whole like point of Fun and Fancy Free made me mad <laughs> because it was this, like the whole theme song is about like not letting the worries of the world bother you. Just like, you know, cause they While don't affect showing us. newspaper clippings predicting cl- the climate catastrophe. Yeah. I yeah. remember. So there's a line at the very beginning when Lainey brings in the paper and basically because she brings in the paper through the dog door, it like messes yep. it up. And yep. Jim's like, darling, isn't it nice that ever since we got lady, we've been seeing less and less of those disturbing headlines. So it's like the same thing is happening here. Right. And I think it all goes back to Walt you know, creating his idyllic worlds where, you know, the troubles of the world don't apply here. You know, there, there's an escapism aspect to it where you can go here and you don't have to let that bother you. But that doesn't, and like quite literally in the movie, the headline, you you don't really know what's going on. You know, it says catastrophe, but like that's all you really see. Like you can kind of make out it's about probably a war the korean war was going on at this time so like or was happening Mm -hmm. in years prior so you know it could be about that um yeah but like you don't really get a sense of what it is and it's because those problems don't actually exist just like everything we've been saying you know like class struggles don't exist in this world really you know um you know the ramifications of being impounded don't actually exist here but they do but they don't. Yeah, exactly. They do. They're there. Just like the newspaper with the article. It's there, mm-hmm. but it's also not there. Right? And, you know, just knowing that Walt modeled this town after, like, you know, the his childhood home that he's obviously romanticized. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a kid, you romanticize. You Or typically, you know, you can romanticize, like, what your childhood was like. Um it makes sense like you know it all kind of like connects like of course like you know he doesn't want 
that stuff to enter his filmscapes because what are they at the end of the day? They're his escapism. They are Mm -hmm. his way of leaving the world. But then when you think about it, like he didn't actually have his hands so much on it when they were writing it. So you can really just tie it to like the company in Mm -hmm. general, you know, like, like people who had creative power in making this movie, which at the end of the day, you can draw to like how the powers that be are like, just don't worry about it. <laughs> don't yeah. think. You don't have to think. It's yeah, fine. It's, Everything it, will be okay. It's extremely inter- it's extremely telling that Walt can only envision an ideal world where problems still exist. They just can't touch him. Mm-hmm. He's not interested in fixing things and making an actual like utopic vision for everybody. He can't see past his own bubble, mm-hmm. which I think is extremely interesting considering Disneyland is happening at this time. Which, if you want to talk about a struggle still exists, but they don't enter the bubble, that's Disneyland and eventually Disney World in a nutshell, where staff are ultimately kind of treated like disposable trash and just a resource to be used and expended for the pleasure of the guests in service of this fantastical bubble universe where everything's great. Exactly. That's his whole MO, right? And I think something that we need to keep in mind also is it's where everything, I think because this is where it's Walt's, Walt's vision comes into place. It's everything is great for him. Because mm-hmm. what was Disneyland at the end of the day? Disneyland was his imagination, imagine, imagination world. It was his place. Like there's stories about how he would just like dress up as a tourist and walk around just so that he could, constantly be there he had an apartment where he could just live there constantly right he like just he wanted he wanted to live in disney world he want i mean disneyland right Mm -hmm. so what so because he's modeling this amusement park after what he wants it's with him so it's always going to be with him in mind right not necessarily anyone else and i think that's how like at the end of the day he definitely modeled his company right it's all about like his vision you know, if someone gets in the way to him getting that vision, he removes the roadblock and moves on, right? Well, that's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And hey, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars only, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. And you can find me at play underscore champion. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests for taking the time to talk to us. You can find Morgan on Instagram at Modane. You can follow Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can follow her poetry account at Tasman May Poetry on Instagram. You can find Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Michelle. And you can follow Erica's lizard children at Benny.andtheman's on Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening. Join us next time where we talk about Sleeping Beauty. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers. Let's see. Um, oh, Lady and the Tramp. Also delightful. Honestly, I would say I preferred the Lady and the Tramp 2 better. Because I like the garbage dogs. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>